the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Hello and welcome to ILTV Zion News on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up in today's newscast, a group of Palestinians breached the Gaza-Israel border. The White House releases an interesting new Middle East peace plan. And Google Duplex reveals how Israelis worked for two decades on bringing their new human-sounding assistant to life. A group of Palestinians from Gaza managed to breach the security fence and enter Israeli territory early this morning. The suspects immediately set fire to an abandoned IDF position nearby, recently used by Israeli snipers during the six-week-long border protests. The group set fire to the empty outpost, then retreated back into the Gaza Strip. As usual, the army holds Hamas responsible for any and all aggression from the enclave. Israeli tanks have just unleashed a barrage of shells in a Hamas observation post in retaliation. Obviously, this is only the latest in a long string of infiltration attempts and aggression by Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, though. This unrest reached its peak last week at the end of the six-week-long March of Return protest sponsored by Hamas. The terror group reportedly offered to cede the violence in exchange for Israel softening its military responses. For that reason, possibly, this past weekend was the calmest in months along the Gaza border. Still. Tensions are obviously extremely volatile in the wake of last week's opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. Soldiers along the border remain on high alert. Tensions along the Gaza border have begun to spread to the West Bank. This morning, an Israeli car was driving outside the Palestinian village of Kafir Ni'ima near Ramallah, where it suddenly came under gunfire in an apparent drive-by shooting. Thankfully, though, the car itself took several bullets. None of the Israeli passengers inside were injured. An IDF manhunt is now underway for the suspects. The security situation in the West Bank is quite different from that in Gaza, made complicated by the fact that Israelis and Palestinians often overlap throughout the region. Though the IDF has seen significant unrest and demonstrations here in the wake of President Trump's decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, security has remained rather tight. Still, this morning's incident is a wake-up call that tensions are still simmering beneath the surface. Last night, the army arrested 11 Palestinian suspects in midnight raids, several of whom are believed to be taking part in terror activities. Despite frozen ties with the PA, security collaboration is perhaps the only place where Israeli and Palestinian authorities continue to cooperate. We're hearing reports now that the White House will release its much-anticipated plan for the Middle East peace next month. But apparently, the details of the supposed plan have already made their way to the Knesset, and word is that Team Trump has proposed offering Abu Dis, a suburb of East Jerusalem, as the capital of the future Palestinian state. ALTV's Brett Allen-Smith has more. Uh, Brett, what are your thoughts? Well, look, it's pretty hard to say if this is actually you know, going to be the deal that's going to be on the table, but the rumors are concrete enough anyway that it's already become a major point of debate in the Knesset. Now, Netanyahu has been pretty quiet so far whether he has actually you know, been briefed in any, any such deal, but you can be sure that he was at least consulted by the Trump administration as they put this deal together, if they put it together, whatever that ends up being. That's why Netanyahu's chief opposition leader, Yair Lapid, has basically accused Netanyahu of accepting Abu Dhabi as a future Palestinian capital, since Netanyahu probably would have been consulted on a deal point like that. So, I mean, just for argument's sake, let's say that Abu Dhabi is on the table. Mm-hmm. 
uh, with this peace plan. Is that an offer that either side would actually even go for? Well, so from the Palestinian side, you know, relations with the U.S. are pretty frozen right now. You know, they just recalled their envoy from Washington last week following the opening of the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. Now, I have heard that Jared Kushner has already started trying to, you know, kind of set the stage for this deal if and when it does arrive next month, which, you know, maybe means Palestinian allies like Egypt and Jordan could be swayed to, to help maybe. But would the Palestinians be open to, to a capital in Abu Dis? I mean, I, I doubt it. I really doubt it. You know, Abu Dis is a pretty far cry from what they, they say they want, a capital that doesn't include Al-Aqsa Mosque, for example, is probably never going to fly with them. Now, as far as Israel goes, it's pretty hard to say. You know, Netanyahu has certainly said again and again that he's willing to accept a fair offer, but then again, most of his coalition partners are extremely against even this idea of a two-state solution. So I doubt that they'll back him in any plan that gives even a small part of Jerusalem to the Palestinians. All right, well, obviously, a lot will depend on the rest of you know, what the deal right. actually says. But Jerusalem is, of course, uh, and has always been sort of the make-or-break point with, with uh, past peace offers. Sure. I mean, well, the rumor is that the White House is waiting until the Ramadan holiday ends in mid-June to officially put this plan out there. And obviously, there's a lot of people uh, very anxious to see it, even though some say it may come kind of dead on arrival, a little too late. All right, well, thank you for your report, Brett. Of course. Now, Israel recently announced that it could not proceed with its plan to forcibly deport nearly 40,000 African men, women, and children living in Israel as asylum seekers. The situation has now essentially reset back to square one with no clear solution on the table. But we've now learned that the state has just blocked hundreds of asylum seekers from accessing their bank accounts by suddenly changing their visa numbers with no prior warning. For the nearly 40,000 asylum seekers in Israel, mostly Christians from Eritrea and Sudan, this visa number is their only identification. This would be the same as suddenly having your social security number changed without your knowledge or permission. The number links asylum seekers to just about every facility in the country, their bank accounts, medical services, and social services, to name a few. Human rights activists accuse the government of purposely making their lives in Israel harder to encourage them to leave on their own free will since the state's deportation plan fell through some months ago. That plan was initially slammed by doctors, diplomats, and Holocaust survivors alike all over the world because it involved sending deportees to a third unnamed African country accused of human trafficking. Then, earlier this year, the United Nations reached a deal with Israel to safely relocate half of Israel's asylum-seeking community to Western countries. But mere hours after Netanyahu praised this plan as the best possible, he scrapped it altogether in light of dissent from his political allies. Fast forward to today, the state has still left thousands of requests for refugee status unanswered. At this time, despite countless testimony of genocide, slavery, and torture in their home countries, less than half of 1% of Israel's asylum seekers have been approved as refugees. United States Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has just outlined new sanctions against Iran, while the remaining signatories of the JCPOA continue to try to come to an agreement with Iranian leaders. But as diplomats do the talking, military tensions in Syria between Israeli and Iranian forces are coming to a head. So the question now remains, what can be done to get Iran to back off? Joining me now with more is Brigadier General Ram Shmueli, former head of Israeli Air Force Intelligence and chairman of Hashomer HaChadash. Thank you very much for coming. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, so, okay, first of all, how entrenched into Syria is Iran? Iran is in Syria in many places. This is not new. They are supporting the regime, they support, they fight the, ins- the insurgencies and everything, but this is not something that Israel care about. We are not interrupting inside the Syrian dispute. 
But when we witness a building of infrastructure, military infrastructure that are heading to Israel in order to confront Israel, this is, some, this is a new ballgame. So Iran is in, in Syria for many years. We are not in this game. We are only in the game that the Iranians are threatening Israel. And what happened last week, mm. it is because they build very big uh, capabilities uh, that will enable them to uh, fire rocket against Israel. And this is where we are uh, retaliating, and this is where we are going to retaliate. So I don't know what are the limitations, but mm. we are not confronting uh, Iran appearance in Syria, even though we don't like it, but this, we are not in this game. We are only in the game of defending Israel. So to more to that point, from Israel's perspective, aren't they one and the same, typically? I mean, Iran entrenching more and more into Syria, regardless of their initial intentions, isn't that, isn't that existentially a threat to Israel to begin with? It's a good question. I don't know the answer for sure. The only thing that I know that uh, there is a big difference when Iran is part of the equation in Syria and part mm -hmm. of the big, big deal that the Russians and the Iranians and the Turks sure. and everyone. This is one step, but the, the step that we are uh, watching very carefully and we don't have any limitation. We are not going to tolerate such mm -hmm. an, a threat to the state of Israel. And more than that, put in the equation, the, the equation is much more big and I'm talking about the nuclear deal. Sure. And what happened two days before we attacked in Syria, a Trump declaration about the, and the, and the 12 uh, uh, asks that mm -hmm. uh, the American asks the, sure. the, the Iranians, uh, this is in the equation. If you think about the, how the Iranians think, they care more about the nuclear deal than to confront Israel in Syria. So for us, there is no limitation. We have the red line. For the Iranians, they have a lot of other capabilities. For example, they can sure. retaliate Israel abroad, like they have done in the past. Right. So this is something that we have to watch very carefully. All right, so let's back away from the military then. I mean, short of, short of going in militarily and forcing Iran um, you know, to whatever border Israel feels safest with, uh, is there maybe a diplomatic or, or a more peaceful route to go with? Is the JCPOA or perhaps uh, the European leaders uh, and the other signatories of the deal upholding that as best as they can, is that the best route to go? First of all, I want to uh, emphasize that this is not a question of distance from the border. Mm. Militarily, you can attack Israel uh, from, uh, from distance if you want. Sure. I want to mention one more player, which are the Syrians. The Syrians last week made a big mistake. We don't have anything with the Syrians, but once they launch 100 missiles against our airplanes, so mm. we attack those batteries. So in this equation, the Iranian deal, the European, the Iranian, the Syrian, and the Russian, this is, this is not our ballgame. Our ballgame is to defend Israel. And I think that we send the clear messages to the Iranian regime that we are not part of the game in Syria on one hand, but we are going to be very strict about any threat to the Israeli state on the other hand, there's a there's a conference that just began here in Israel uh, for the Israeli Air Force. They're kind of showing off uh, to the other air forces uh, around the world a lot of the different things that we're doing. And Commander Nolkin said, uh, or rather revealed, some photos of the F-35 flying over Beirut. So, are we also factoring factoring in uh, Hezbollah into this equation as well? First of all, we bought the F-35 not to play game in Israel. This is uh, part of our uh, national defense. 
And of course, we are the first uh, outside America uh, states that uh, own and bought this airplane. But flying above Lebanon, we fly above Lebanon, we fly everywhere mm-hmm. in order to protect our country. So there are no limitations where we fly. The only thing that we have to limit ourselves okay. is to protect uh, the state of Israel and not to collision, make any, any uh, yeah. deconflictions with the Russians. And this is what we do in the last uh, couple of months. All right, Brigadier General Shmueli, thank you very much for coming back into the studio with us. You're welcome. Now, this may be hard to believe, but apparently not everyone loved Neta Barzilai's killer Eurovision-winning performance of Toy. In fact, her song was just parodied by a Dutch state-funded television. But some say that the spoof goes a little too far and simply became an excuse to hurl dangerous anti-Semitic and anti-Israeli stereotypes. The clip aired earlier this week as part of the San Wallace show, featuring Dutch comedian San Wallace de Vries as Barzilai. The song is recreated in bizarre Dutch lyrics and mimics Barzilai's mannerisms and costume during her winning performance. But the spoof quickly takes a political turn. Replacing the lyrics to the tune of Toy, the performer sings instead, quote, Look how beautiful I'm throwing bombs. Israel again wins. 70 years already, the party's on. No way, no Palestinians coming in. I hunt Palestinians through the curtains, end quote. The video further features images of the Israeli army clashing with Palestinians in the West Bank and footage taken from the recent Gaza border clashes. The song also directly criticizes the recent move of the United States Embassy to Jerusalem, complete with Barzilai-esque sound effects. The lyrics read, quote, If your party's crashed, make sure you cash on embassies with your ka-ching-ka-ching and your ping-a-ping with your dollars and cents and your funds, end quote. Jewish groups have voiced their outrage, slamming the spoof as anti-Israel and anti-Semitic, for equating Jews with money. But though many find the sketch disgusting, some say it accurately highlights the manic attitude and conduct of Israel over the past week. While Israelis were celebrating Neta Barzilai's win, Palestinians were simultaneously protesting against the opening of the United States Embassy in Jerusalem. And though most of those killed were Hamas terrorists, these clashes claimed over 112 Palestinian lives, sparking calls for an international investigation of war crimes. Israel's Air Force is today holding its biggest international conference in nearly two decades, and the three-day event is bringing representatives from over 20 national militaries around the world right here to Israel. Israel's Air Force is considered one of the strongest, if not the strongest, in the world, so it's no wonder so many countries are eager to hear what the IAF's top minds have to say. The conference's main topic is aerial superiority, which is obviously a crucial part of Israel's security. The countries expected to join the CONFAB include the United States, the UK, France, India, Canada, and Italy. But IAF officials actually aren't giving out the official guest list. That's because other attendees likely include Arab nations that hold secret military ties with the Jewish state and for now want those ties to remain a secret. But given Israeli expertise in the skies, we wouldn't be surprised to learn that many uh, Muslim-majority nations and Gulf states are on the guest list. Israel's Air Force has even held aerial drills with the United Arab Emirates and Pakistan in the past, two countries that don't even formally recognize the Jewish state. Today's big event kicked off with speeches from Israeli and foreign officials in Herzliya, and then tomorrow visitors will get a personal tour of Israel's airspace to study how Israel faces the challenges of defending its skies. Earlier this month, the geniuses at Google unveiled the next generation of autonomous technology dubbed Google Duplex. The tech featured a completely human-sounding voice that could actually make phone calls and interact with other humans, like a robotic personal assistant. Well, it shouldn't shock you to learn that 
All that insanely cool technology was developed right here in Google's Israel R&D Center. But to understand just what a game changer this actually is, take a listen to a real phone call that Google revealed on stage to a shocked audience. Hi, I'm calling to book a woman's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. Sure, give me one second. Mm-hmm. Sure, what time are you looking for around? At 12 p.m. We do not have a 12 p.m. available. The closest we have to that is a 1.15. Do you have anything between 10 a.m. and uh, 12 p.m.? Depending on what service she would like, what service is she looking for? Yes, my friends, that is a conversation between a human and a robot, complete with realistic fillers like mm-hmms and mm's. This amazing technology works with Google Assistant with the idea to create an autonomous, personalized assistant that works in the background for you and even makes calls to set up appointments on your behalf. Well, it turns out that the majority of this technology was developed by Israeli engineers in the Tel Aviv Google Hub. And Yaniv Leviathan and Yossi Matias have actually been experimenting with this technology for the last 20 years or so. Their challenge was to create a system that sounded totally realistic and went beyond just mimicking the patterns of a normal conversation, but actually facilitated one. Human speech patterns are, of course, pretty unique. We often correct ourselves in mid-conversation or change our pace as the context of our talk changes. While Google Duplex may not be 100% perfect, but wow, is it close. The system recognizes when the other speaker's meaning changes and adapts to certain hurdles. It can even recognize when the task becomes too complex, prompting it to put a real human on the line to finish the job. Google Assistant is already available on nearly half a billion devices around the world, but as Google Duplex gets its kinks worked out, it'll slowly be released to the public as well. The future is arriving a lot faster than we thought. My next guest today joins us for a very special event, Not Worth a Headpin. The latest solo exhibition by Georgian artist Maggie Rom has just opened to the public. But Rom's works are more than just simple paintings. They reflect a much deeper and unfortunately common occurrence. And here to tell us all about it is Rachel Sukman, chief curator of the Office of Tel Aviv Gallery and chief editor and founder of Terminal Art Magazine. Thank you so much for coming in today. So tell us a little bit about the exhibition. How many pieces are in the, are in the exhibition? What is the exhibition uh, of exactly? Well, the exhibition was built as a surrounding for the play she is going to, uh, to give. She's going to perform, sure. To perform, yes. This is a very dramatic play that uh, Maggie Rome wrote by herself. And uh, the paintings that uh, we see there are talking to the history of her life, which was really very, very impressive, how she came over all the problems that a young girl can have in a Georgian surrounding. Well, and so let's get into that story a little bit, because I understand that, uh, you know, she was kidnapped, right? Yes. So, yeah, she was kidnapped by a guy that was really very older than he. She was 13 years and he was 25. And it was because of kind of um, symbols in uh, the ancient Georgian Mm -hmm. that the man can kidnap his uh, bride. But she was young. He didn't uh, realize what he's doing. Mm -hmm. That's why after... He was um, 
Yes, he was. Uh, he had to stay in the in the prison twenty years. <laughs> yes, but the the thing is that her family and she herself was thinking what will happen to her parents and her brothers. So she changed her testimony, and she said that she agreed to the oh, kidnapping, wow. and he was released after so, two years. So to protect her family, yes. he got out of prison early, and then she ended up yes, being with him. Yes, she ended up, be, but she was pregnant, and, wow. she was, and she gave birth when he was still in the... In, in by prison. custody in prison. Oh wow, that's so. It's really a very dramatic uh, drama. Yeah, and and so that's the performance. Basically, in the artwork is really about and this story. And the artwork story. is about all of her life because sure. she loves music. She's a pianist. Mm. She's a performer. She's a painter. So she's doing everything, wow. and she loves Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach. Sure. So most of the yeah, we see a lot of a lot of you uh, saw a music lot of, in, in, yes, you know, as a theme. That's right. Well, okay, so I, I hate to cut you off, but I want to make sure that, that we tell everybody the exhibition is already open. Yes. It opened a few days ago. And the next ago. show, can I say when yeah, will sure. be the next show? Please. The next show will be at the 29th okay. of May, Tuesday, 8 o'clock in the, in, in the evening. In the evening. And it's at the office in Tel Aviv Gallery, Zaman of Six, Tel Aviv. Perfect. And people have to call and to reserve a place because a lot of people want to come and I'm see sure, the drama. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure the performance is, is one that needs to be seen. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you, too. All right, now, are you ready for a cuteness overload? Then prepare to meet the brand new member of the Jerusalem Biblical Zoo, an adorable baby giraffe who was actually also born the night of the Eurovision final. Which means, and I think you know where this is going, zookeepers knew uh, there was only one name to give her, Toy. Baby Toy's name, of course, honors the Eurovision-winning song performed by Israeli megastar Neta Barzilai at this year's song competition. Now, typically, coming up with names for a new zoo animal is a long and diplomatic process. Zookeepers and managers will pitch an array of different names, which are eventually chosen from collectively by the staff. But this adorable baby giraffe was delivered to the world on the very night Barzilai took the Eurovision stage and chicken-danced her way into world fame. So the next morning, when everyone came into work and met the baby giraffe for the first time, it was pretty obvious what her name would be. Toy now stands over a meter and a half tall, weighing in at about 100 kilos, but she isn't quite ready to see the public yet. Toy will be kept inside the giraffe house with her mom for another couple of weeks, but after that, zookeepers will release her to the park's African enclosure, where Toy will make all kinds of friends with rhinos, hippos, and zebras, and be introduced to the world. Believe it or not, we now have another shocking archaeological discovery on our hands. Experts believe the earliest known evidence of the Semitic alphabet, most likely used by the ancient Canaanites, has been found in Egypt. The symbols were inscribed on a piece of limestone that's nearly 3,400 years old. The slab itself was actually found decades ago during a dig in Luxor's tomb of Senefiri in Egypt. But experts have now finally managed to decipher the ancient symbols. Most shockingly of all, though, the limestone piece, which can fit in the palm of your hand, may actually have two forms of the early Semitic alphabet, and these symbols are believed to be where the Hebrew alphabet comes from. The slab contains Egyptian writing in cursive, including the transliteration of the sounds, which may be a precursor to the Aleph Bet, familiar to Hebrew speakers. A lot of this remains shrouded in mystery, though. 
The majority of the Semitic alphabet has yet to be fully deciphered. Experts have actually been puzzling over this small limestone piece since it was discovered in 1995 uh, by Dr. Nigel Strudwick. But historians are still unclear as to how this slab ended up in the tomb at all. It's possible that it was moved there from somewhere else back in 1907 when the tomb was used as a house. Either way, fate has now delivered it to the hands of archaeologists and language experts so that they can unwind our mysterious origins. The Hebrew Word of the Day is brought to you by IDC Samrul Pan, open to everyone. And now for our Hebrew Word of the Day. After a newly discovered alphabet is found in Egypt, it stands to reason that our word would be alphabet, or in Hebrew, Aleph Bet. Now you probably noticed, alphabet and Aleph Bet sound strikingly similar, but the reason is pretty interesting. You see, the English word alphabet comes from alphabetos, uh, which is comprised of the first two letters in Latin and Greek, alpha and beta. But then even that goes back to the very first known Aleph Bet, which was written in Phoenician. And the first two letters there were Aleph and Bet, the same two first letters in Hebrew, uh, revived and used thousands of years later here in modern Israel. What Aleph Bet do you know? Now let's go ahead and take a look at the weather forecast. Tonight will be partly cloudy but warm with a low of about 75 or 24 degrees Celsius. And tomorrow you can expect sunny skies but a drop in temperatures to a high of around 85 or 29 degrees Celsius. 